Turn once again in your Bibles to the first chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Last week we saw the truth that God has revealed Himself clearly through the creation. So clearly and so universally has He revealed Himself in what He has made that it leaves everyone without excuse. So this begs the question, if God's revelation of himself is so clear and so evident in the creation, then why do so many people reject God and even deny the existence of God? We're going to see the answer to that question in our text this morning. So join with me in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18, though our real focus is going to be on verses 21 through 23. But let's go back to verse 18 and begin there to set the context a bit. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul continues to write, and he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This is the Word of God. Will you join me in praying as we ask for the Lord's help in understanding these things? Lord God, we acknowledge before you that our thinking is still fallen, our reasoning is oftentimes still darkened, Though we have the promise of your Spirit, we who are Christians, the promise of your Spirit who illumines our minds and our hearts to the things of God, to the truth of God, to the revelation of God. So do that miraculous, illuminating work in our minds and hearts this morning as we long to see Jesus, even as we have sung. Lord, turn our eyes to Jesus. Help us to see his glory his sufficiency, and our great need of him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't unbelievers see what God has made so evident in his creation? It's because they are lost. And this morning we're going to see five tragic realities concerning the spiritual condition of lost people. In each of my points this morning, I'll be referring to the spiritual condition of lost people. When I say lost people, I mean those who aren't saved. Those who are still unbelieving with respect to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are those who are lost in sin and who up to this point in their lives are living outside of God's saving grace. They are lost That's what the Bible refers to them as. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's the good news. 
But don't ever mistake the fact, the tragic fact, that many in this world are still lost. Lost and dying in their sin. So this morning we're going to see five tragic realities concerning the spiritual condition of the lost. And the first thing we learn about the spiritual condition of the lost is that lost people know that God exists. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. Now we saw this last week some, but to understand what Paul is speaking of here as an argument, we need to consider it once again briefly. Paul could not be clearer here about the fact that God has so revealed himself in the natural world around us that it is impossible for anyone not to know that he exists. That he is the creator and that mankind is accountable to him. Let me just summarize verses 19 and 20 here for you. Paul says that the knowledge of God's existence is evident to all mankind. And that God is the one who made it evident to them and ensured that it would be evident to them. God is the ultimate teacher. And He is able to reveal Himself to all people of all ages at all times. God has made Himself evident to all. God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen. Clearly seen through what He has made. Through the creation He has brought into existence. This clear, universal evidence leaves every person without excuse. This truth that God has proven His own existence to all people through what He has made is called general revelation. And we talked about that a little bit last week. It is the revelation that goes out to all people. It is the revelation that is general in terms of its audience. It goes out to everyone indiscriminately. It's the same truth that was shared in the Old Testament in Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, not through audible words, but as a reflection of God's glory. They tell of something greater than themselves. The brilliant starlight in the sky, the incredible vistas of a mountain range, the beauty of an ocean coming in from the shore, all of that tells of something greater than themselves, tells and speaks of of a reality greater than themselves. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. They reflect the glory of God. As glorious as the created world is around us, they're simply echoes of a glory greater than themselves. The glory of the Creator. I love what Martin Luther says. He says, God writes not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and clouds and stars. You get what he's getting at there. He's saying the same thing that Psalm 19 is saying, that God has written a testimony and evidence of himself in the created world that he has made. 
George Washington Carver, the black scientist and inventor of the 19th century, said this, Reading about nature is fine, but if a person walks in the woods and listens carefully, he can learn more than what is in books, for they speak with the voice of God. He's simply acknowledging that there is a sense of transcendence that overcomes us when we walk in the woods, when we walk on the beach, when we take a walk in the evening and we see a sunset. There's a sense of transcendence that comes over us, that God is communicating to us, that He's he's testifying to His own existence, His own power, His own majesty in these things. This general revelation leaves everyone everyone of sufficient age and basic rational ability fully informed of God's existence and therefore without excuse. Philosophers and theologians have called the evidence for God in nature the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument. Now you're never going to argue anyone into the kingdom of God, right? And we're going to see why that's the case this morning. You can't argue someone, you can't reason someone into the kingdom of God. But there are plenty of reasons, there are plenty of arguments and reasons to believe in God. The cosmological argument is one of them, and it goes this way. The cosmological argument says all things have beginnings, all things that have beginnings must have causes. All things that have beginnings must have causes. It's cause and effect. If you have an effect, there must be a cause that caused the effect. If the universe is the effect, there must be a cause for the universe. Since the universe had a beginning, it must have a cause that is outside of itself. Scientific naturalism, the best that it can do, says, well, the cause of the universe is the Big Bang. But what was the cause of the Big Bang? Where did the necessary matter that caused the Big Bang come from? Scientists can't really answer that. That's as far back as they can go, but the Bible goes farther back. Before the existence of anything, in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so from the first page of the Bible, the first line of the Bible, we're told about a God who exists outside the universe, before the universe, over the universe, and who is the creator of the universe. There's so much packed into the first verse of the whole Bible. God is the cause behind the beginning of the universe. The Bible reveals God as the self-existent and eternal God who exists outside the universe, before the universe, and completely independent of the universe. As Augustine argued, God is the only uncaused cause. He is the only unmoved mover. God has always existed in eternity. There was never a point in time when He did not exist, though there was a point in time when the universe did not exist. Now, all of this means that there aren't any real, true atheists or agnostics. That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul says. That's what Psalm 19 says. Everyone has been informed that God exists. Everyone is informed that God made the universe and everything in it. And that God made us. 
and that as our Creator, we are therefore accountable to Him. Now, if that's the case, if it's true that everyone has been fully informed of God's existence, that He is the Creator, that we are accountable to Him, then why doesn't everyone worship God and seek to live for Him? What's wrong with people? Why, why doesn't it seem like more people aren't following the Lord? Why does it seem like there are so many who don't believe in God? We find the answer to this question back in verse 18, so join me there. And that brings us to the second truth. Lost people suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul reveals to us here that without God's grace in Jesus Christ, all people are ungodly and unrighteous and that they are in the process of suppressing God's truth in their own unrighteousness. Now what does that mean? To suppress the truth is to hold it down. It's to push it down by any means. To push it down by means of denying the truth, of disregarding the truth, of discounting the truth, of distracting yourself from the truth. All of mankind suppresses the truth, tries to keep it down, tries to push it away, tries to hide it unsuccessfully. All people have been shown the truth about God and His existence, a truth that is evident to all. It is around everyone and within them, but they suppress this knowledge of the truth in their unrighteousness. You see, in our sinful rebellion against our Creator, we love our sin more than we love the truth that is so evident around us. We love our independence of God more than we love the evidence of God's existence that He's placed there for us to see. We love our rebellion more than we love the proof of His existence that God has built into the very fabric of the universe He has made. So instead of submitting to the evidence and knowledge that God has so clearly revealed in the universe, sinful mankind suppresses this truth in their unrighteousness. We push it down and pretend it doesn't exist. We say that it can't be the truth. We ignore it. We deny it. We distract ourselves from it. For if it is indeed true, then we will give an account of our lives to God. We will answer to God for the way we lived our life and for the life that He gave us. If God created all that is, if God created us, then He has authority over us. He has the right to tell us what is right and wrong, true and false. And if He is our authority, then we're accountable to Him. And quite simply, sinful man doesn't like this. So we either make God out to be something that He isn't, like an idol, or we create a false religion, or we seek to prove that the creation isn't saying what it is so clearly saying. We seek to prove that the creation simply existed on its own. Nothing ever came out of nothing. So we seek to prove the creation is self-creating and self-perpetuating and eliminate the need for God altogether. And in eliminating the need for God, we eliminate our accountability to Him, or we think we do. Listen to the words of Thomas Nagel, New York University philosophy professor. 
and an influential atheist in his book called The Last Word, he says this. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I appreciate how candid and honest Dr. Nagel is in writing this. And it underscores the tragic reality that lost people have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And together they say, I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I don't want the universe to operate like that. But they're just whistling past the graveyard, hoping against hope that what God has made evident and plain to all isn't indeed the case. Sinful mankind pushes down the truth of God, suppresses it in their unrighteousness. There there is therefore a willful refusal to accept the facts that are so evident reminds us that the rejection of God is never merely a rational issue. It's not an issue of science. It's not an issue of intellect. It's never an evidence issue. It's always a moral issue. It's always a spiritual issue. Human beings in their sin and rebellion reject the idea of God as He has revealed Himself in His creation because they do not want to be accountable to Him. They do not want to be submissive to Him, and they do not want to have to answer to Him. That brings us to the third point. Lost people refuse to worship God or give thanks. Verse 21, the first part. Romans 1.21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Despite the fact that Lost people know God. That is, they know about God. They know of His existence and His power and His majesty and His creativity and so forth. Despite this knowledge about God, they do not go on to honor Him as God or give thanks. They are in willful rebellion to Him. They've received the knowledge about Him and they've rejected it. They've rejected Him. As part of suppressing the truth, they refuse to give God what He deserves and what He demands from His creation, which is praise and thanksgiving. God is worthy of our praise and deserving of our thanks. Revelation 4.11 pictures the heavenly throne room and the angelic chorus that says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You see, God's worth is bound up in His creation. His worth is is put on display through His creation. And His creation gives us cause and reason for giving Him praise, honor, and thanksgiving. And so a failure to give God praise and worship and thanks is really the root of 
all the sin of fallen mankind. Failure to praise and worship and thank God is the first and most fundamental sin of humanity. A failure to honor God as God and a failure to acknowledge that all we have is from Him and give Him thanks for it. This is the fundamental and root sin of all humanity. Think about our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. What did Satan do? He tempted Eve with what was out of bounds. God had blessed Adam and Eve with Eden, paradise. And he said, enjoy all the fruit of the trees that are in the garden, except one. And that's where Satan went. He, he honed in on that. And he tempted Adam and Eve, questioning God's goodness, questioning God's motive. And the result was Adam and Eve sinned against God and plunged us all, all of humanity into sin and the curse of the fall. Eve was susceptible to the temptation about God not being good susceptible to ingratitude yeah why hasn't God allowed us to eat of every tree of the garden why has he kept this one from us see this is the root sin it's a failure to see God for who he is to worship him obey him submit to him and give him thanks to live within the borders and the confines of the world that he has made and the the rules that he has given We as human beings were created in God's image and according to His likeness. We were created with the special ability and consciousness to be able to give glory to Him and to give Him thanks. We among all God's creation have the reasoning capability to appreciate what we have, where it comes from, and to give thanks to God for life and breath and all things that come from His good hand. While God gives to all living beings life and all things, only human beings are capable of such self-awareness, of such self-consciousness, and a sense of God and His transcendence to be able to worship Him and praise Him with thanksgiving in our hearts as we've been created to do. To glorify God and give Him thanks is really the pinnacle of human existence. The psalmist speaks of this as the fear of the Lord. Psalm 86, 11 and 12 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. Give me an undivided heart to fear your name, God, to reverence you, to love you, to serve you, to obey you. And then he goes on, he says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Thanks to God, glorifying God, the praise and thanksgiving that are due to God go hand in hand, and they go together in the heart of the person who fears the Lord. As humanity, we've been given one job, to worship God and give Him thanks for all that He's done for us. That's our one job. I love all that stuff going around the internet. You know, you had one job. You had to paint the sign on the street leading up to the stop sign, and it was supposed to say stop, but you made it said spot. 
You had one job, and you messed it up. So it is for all of humanity. We had one job, to worship God, to glorify God, to thank Him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our purpose. That's our task. That's the reason we've been created. We had one job, and we've messed it up. All of us have gone astray. Again, it's important to note that this failure to worship God and give Him thanks is not for a lack of evidence. Paul says they knew God, and yet despite all the evidence and despite their own knowledge, they chose to reject God and refuse to worship Him or give Him thanks for what they have and what He's done for them as the giver of life and all good gifts. Dr. Tom Schreiner in his excellent commentary on the book of Romans says this, giving thanks and praise to God is the fundamental role of the creature and in thankfulness to the Creator, we express and experience the fullness of what it means to be human. This is what it means to be human. To see the evidence God has placed within the creation around us. And to glorify God for that evidence. To glorify God for the majesty and the power that is His. Not only do we fail to worship God, but we fail to give Him thanks. Paul told Timothy that ingratitude was one of the hallmarks of people in the last days. They'll not be grateful. It's part of the spirit of Antichrist. Failure to give thanks to God is the height of pride and godlessness. It's important to note that gratitude must fundamentally be directed toward God since every good gift ultimately comes from Him. Listen to this blog post from a few years ago at Thanksgiving time that was on the Huffington Post. It was entitled, This Thanksgiving, I'm Thanking Myself. Here's the letter she wrote. I know, right? (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes. This is the letter she wrote to herself. Dear Layla, happy Thanksgiving. I'm very grateful for the strength you have shown this year. Even though you had some dark months and wouldn't acknowledge the silver lining, you kept pushing forward. You are loving, honest, and generous. Though there have been many changes you've had to adjust to, you finally are setting boundaries, practicing yoga regularly, learning to say no without explanation, and you continue to practice living in the present moment. Keep your chin up, darling, and know how much you are loved. Thank you for not giving up, staying positive, and starting to rebuild this relationship again. Love always your grateful self. Well, that's a sad commentary on the tragic consequences of being a lost person. You think you have no one to think but yourself. And in fact, God is the one who's given you life and breath and all things. Strength for each day. Food and clothing. Shelter. All that is needed and so much more. Notice there's a natural progression here in this passage. Lost people see the truth of God and creation all around them. 
but they suppress this truth in unrighteousness. Having suppressed the truth of God in their unrighteousness, they naturally refuse to worship this God or acknowledge Him as God and as the great gift giver and provider for their every need. They have written God out of their lives by pretending that He doesn't exist. That's not all. Notice what Paul says next in verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. That brings us to the fourth tragic description. Lost people become futile in their speculations, in their reasoning, in their thinking. Last part of verse 21. Instead of glorifying, worshiping, praising, and thanking God, they become futile in their speculations. Their thinking and reasoning become vain, empty, and worthless. Not only was their reasoning flawed, but Paul says that their foolish heart was darkened. In the Bible, the human heart is the mission control center of the human experience. It's where life is lived. It's in the heart. The heart is the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotions. It's where our lives are really lived, in our innermost person. The heart is the unseen us that makes us who we are. And Paul says that the lost person's foolish heart is darkened. We hear the mantra, the advice given all the time, just follow your heart. Do what your heart tells you to do. That's terrible advice. It's terrible counsel. Because Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, since the fall of man into sin, our hearts are sick. Our hearts are darkened by the curse of the fall and by our own sinful inclinations. Proverbs 28, 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Don't trust your heart. Don't listen to your heart. That's terrible advice. Listen to the Lord. Paul in Ephesians 4, 17 describes how unbelievers live in their darkened reasoning. He says, I... So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. A darkened heart leads to a darkened life. A darkened mind leads to darkened activities. We're going to see that in the new year when we get to it in verses to come. This futility and darkened reasoning are what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. N-O-E-T-I-C. The term noetic refers to the mind and its ability to reason. You see, with the dawn of sin and the fall, Our minds are fallen. Our hearts are fallen. Tainted by sin. The entry of sin and the fall 
into humanity has resulted in a loss of reasoning ability, of mental capability. Our minds, our hearts, our thinking, our reasoning, and our willing have all been corrupted because of the fall of mankind into sin. The lost person's ability to reason and think is significantly hampered by the fall and by sin's rebellion in the heart. It means that the lost person cannot reason their way out of their own sin and rebellion. They can't think their way out of their own sin and rebellion. They can't will their way out of their own sin and rebellion. God has already made the case of His own existence crystal clear. And that evidence has been rejected despite the overwhelming evidence. It's not an issue of reasoning your way out of sinfulness and lostness. Sin has tragically made us all dumber. You're dumb and I'm dumber. Unwilling to see things as they truly are. Outside of God's grace, outside of the redeeming work of Christ, our reasoning is fallen and faulty and can't be trusted to guide us to the truth. It will always guide us away from the truth, away from God's existence, because we suppress the truth. Lost people on their own are neither neutral nor objective in their thinking and reasoning. They always reason from their presuppositions and their pre-allegiances. Presuppositions and pre-allegiances that are naturally bent away from God and towards sinful independence and rebellion. That is the nature, the tragic nature of the lost in this world. Fifth, lost people foolishly exchange the glory of the Creator for the worship of the creation. Verses 22 and 23. Look at verse 23, very, very short. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Because their foolish heart was darkened, their reasoning was skewed towards sinful independence and rebellion and away from worshiping God and thanking Him, and they did so in the name of wisdom, the pursuit of truth. But it was worldly wisdom to be sure. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there is a way which seems right to a man, but... In the end, it leads only to death. They went down the path that seemed right to them. It was the broad path that leads to destruction. In thinking and professing themselves to be wise, they actually became fools. And they proved outwardly by their profession what was in their darkened hearts. Foolishness. The word fool there, we get our English word moron from that Greek word. Their foolishness was seen in the fact that they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. Something less than God himself and his glory. Paul's describing here the sin of idolatry. Idolatry, which often came in the form of worshiping an image of a man or of a bird or a bull or a reptile of some kind. But you see, there was a whole lot more going on with idolatry than just the image of stone or of wood or of metal. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that 
what's actually going on behind the idol is demonic. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 He says, what do I mean mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. He says, look, when these people are worshiping these idols of stone and wood and steel, what they're actually worshiping is the demon that stands behind it, the demon that inspired it, the demon that led them astray, away from God and toward destruction destruction behind every idol is a demon or demons demons are servants of satan who are committing committed to doing just what satan the tempter has been doing from the very beginning seeking to lure people away from worshiping god alone paul tells us in ephesians 6 12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. An idol is nothing. An idol is but wood, clay, stone. But what stands behind the idol is satanic. Behind every idol, behind every false god, and behind every false religion, that contradicts the clear gospel message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, is a demon or demons with a demonic plot to deceive and destroy as many people as possible. You see what's going on here? You see the cosmic interplay that's happening? The war against God is a war of demons and of the satanic. When we fail to give God glory and give Him thanks, when we fail to worship God, we will inevitably worship something else. For God has made us to be worshipers. We will always be worshiping something. And it's the fool who refuses to worship the God who made him and instead worships something else, something less, something created something that falls far short of the glory of God. Augustine in his confession says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We have been made for God, and we will not rest until we find him. But we will always be worshiping something. Listen to what Blaise Pascal says, What else does this craving and this helplessness in man proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, only by God himself. That's part of being made in God's image. We've been created to worship him. And when we go around seeking other things to worship, lesser things, it will never satisfy it. It will always lead to our demise and our destruction. 
In mankind's quest for meaning and truth and significance, the lost person seeks to fill the void in their lives created by sin with every kind of idol imaginable. Idols of wealth and idols of fame and lust and beauty and power and freedom and acceptance. Idols of success and fitness and self-righteousness and indulgence and even idols of self-denial. All these are modern-day gods many of which have their own systems of religion supporting them. Lost people have exchanged the glory of God for the, incorrupt, for the corruptible image that is less than God. John Calvin famously observed that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory, every day pumping out new idols, new things to worship in place of God. Outside the gospel of Jesus Christ, Worship of anything less than God is nothing more than idol worship. So what's a person to do? What is a person to do? What is a lost person to do? If lost people have seen the truth about God and creation, but have suppressed that truth in unrighteousness, and if they've become futile in their reasoning and their foolish heart has been darkened, and if in professing to be wise they've actually become fools, and they've exchanged the glory of God and worshipped and served instead the corruptible images of idolatry, if this is truly the case for the lost person, then what's a lost person to do? Is there any hope? Is it impossible for a lost person to come to a saving knowledge of God? Jesus provides the answer in describing how difficult it is for a rich person who worships his wealth, who worships his independence. Jesus told his disciples this, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because they're so devoted to their idol of wealth and independence. He says, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Pretty hard for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, wouldn't you say? In fact, let's not say it's hard. Let's say it's impossible. That's the point. So the disciples say, well, then who can be saved? From a human perspective, salvation looks as impossible as a camel walking through the eye of a needle. Who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, salvation is impossible for us, left to ourselves, but God doesn't leave us to ourselves. In mercy, He comes toward us. In mercy, He is God with us. He sends His own Son, Jesus Christ, on a rescue mission for us. And that's why Paul is so eager to preach the gospel in Romans 1.16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel brings light into the darkness. The gospel opens blind eyes. The gospel gives spiritual life where there was only spiritual death. The gospel shows us the surpassing glory of God and makes us glad to exchange our corruptible idols that could never satisfy anyway and never save us. To exchange those things for the incorruptible, glorious God who made us and sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. 
With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So maybe you're here today and you're, you identify as that lost person. Let me tell you, there is great hope for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So seek the Lord. Call out to Him. Cry out to, his, to Him for mercy. Seek Jesus for grace and forgiveness. Trust in Jesus and He will save you and change you from the inside out and take you from the path of foolishness and destruction and put you on the path of wisdom, forgiveness, and eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the great gift of salvation through faith in you and your finished work. Father God, thank you for leaving a witness to yourself in the created order, something that is evident to all people. And yet, Lord, we confess that we have suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness. We don't want a God ruling over us. We want to be the gods. We want to call the shots. Forgive us, Lord. I pray for any here who aren't sure they're a Christian or maybe they're certain that they are lost, that they would see the tragic nature of their condition and where they're headed and turn from it and seek you, O God, while you may be found and cry out to you for mercy and grace and receive that mercy and grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for your mercy and grace and salvation. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. And thank you for overcoming our foolish hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.